Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. Here's New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fam. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. Two episodes this week. First one today, second coming on Thursday. First up, we're going to talk some college football. We're joined by friends of the podcast, Bill Benner, the Sporting News. We're going to break down the upcoming season, who are the teams to watch, what's up with the Big Ten expansion, all that fun stuff with Bill in just a bit. We're also going to get you ready for fantasy football. You know, your draft's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So we have a couple of fantasy spots this week, starting today with Matt Schauf of the uh, Draft Sharks Fantasy Football Podcast. We're going to get you ready for some draft coverage, talk about some guys to draft, guys to watch, guys to avoid, all the fun stuff with Matt in just a bit. So make sure you're locked in the end of the show if it takes two minutes. I'll give you my thoughts on She-Hulk, the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe show on Disney+. Plus, and I like it a lot more than the ones we've gotten recently, so I'll tell you why in just a bit. If you like what you hear on the Justin and Suffering Podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering or Favorite Podcast platforms. You can find our episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. We help with the podcast even better going forward. Check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You want video versions of the conversations with Bill and Matt today. They're on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, let's get to our opening tip. We have the second round of the Subway Series coming up here, and these teams are in different spots than we saw them the first time around. We'll get to all that right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. We are back on the opening tip of this week's podcast, talking about the stage being set here for round number two of the Subway Series in the New York Mets and New York Yankees here. And things have changed a lot in the months these teams last played. I mean, the Yankees have been spiraling downward and out of control for about two months now. It is pretty wacky if you look at it. I mean, if you go back to, I want to say, July 9th, right before the All-Star break, when the Yankees were in Boston taking on the Red Sox. They win the first two games of that series with Boston. They are up in the third game. They're on the way to a four-game sweep, and they go ahead. They lose that game. They were 61-23 and entering that game. Since then, since the 61-23 and mark, They've won 13 games, and they've lost 25. That's a long stretch of bad baseball for the Yankees here. And it feels like there's some combination of everything sort of going wrong at once. Lack of hitting, key injuries, poor pitching. The list goes on and on and on. This homestand they've been on has been brutal. They lost two out of three to Tampa Bay. Could have been swept if not for a Josh Donaldson walk-off grand slam thanks to the clown runner rule in the extra innings. They lose three of four to the Blue Jays here. The Heat's really piling up on the Yankees. The month of August is brutal for them. They've been well below 500 in the month of August. 
mean, the fans are getting restless. They were booing Hal Steinbrenner yesterday when he went out for the Paul Neal retire, number retirement ceremony. Aaron Boone's come under a lot of heat. Brian Cash come under a lot of heat. This is a challenging stretch in the Yankees. If you look at it, this is a team that was not even two months ago. We were talking about, is this the 1998 New York Yankees? Are they a legendary team? Now they've seen their lead in the AL East, which was 16 and a half at one point over Toronto and Tampa, shrink down to eight, seven in the loss column. Now, I mean, they do have enough of a cushion built up that should be able to withstand. They don't have a ton of series left against both teams. You look at their schedule here. They only have, I believe, one series left with Toronto. That's in Toronto in late September. They have two They have two more with Tampa coming up here in rapid succession early September here. You take a look at what's going on here. I mean, they have to get their, their act together really quick because there are a lot of teams in that schedule that are challenging at the least. Starting with, you know, the Mets this week. Speaking of the Mets, boy, they have a week. They have had a crazy week. They lose three or four in Atlanta. They have Tylon Walker as a herniated disc in his back. He missed his start on Sunday. Might be back in the Yankee series. Might be back beyond this. But don't expect him to miss too much time. They had a couple of second basemen hit the shelf. Luis Guillorme and Eduardo Escobar both hit the IL, both third base, actually. Oblique and hamstring issues for both of them. So that means Brett Beatty got the call up. And Brett Beatty came on, had a huge impact, had a home run his first game. That's some timely hits. By his show, he's still a rookie. He's having some issues defensively. They have lost Tomas Nia based on the COVID list. You know, when he's going to be back, we're not Michael Perez, the backup catcher here. But you know what? Had a great weekend in Philly. Won three of four. Cobbled together this series somehow, despite basically using half the Syracuse pitching staff in this game. Especially Sunday, which felt like the win of the year. A year there have been many of those. They gummed out 4 nothing early when Jose Budo has trouble coming out of the game his major league debut. Tied up. Buckshaw Walter forced to ask Budo to go longer because they don't really have any guys in the bullpen. Because that three more runs. It's knocked out. 7-4. They bring in another guy who's never pitched before in the big leagues, Nate Fisher, who, great story, was undrafted free agent, actually quit baseball a few years ago to become an investment banker. Comes back with the Mariners, signs the Mets as a free agent, comes up, three scoreless innings, including over a rain delay, which is impressive. Mets keep charging back. Mets win the game in the ninth inning, 10-9, dramatic win. And they did a good job so far on this tough stretch they've had. This is a 13-game stretch we said was to find their season a few weeks ago where they had the Phillies at home for three, this four-game series of the Braves, four games with the Phillies over three days, and then two with the Yankees. So you, know, you can go seven and six, you're in a good spot there. They're six and five right now with that stretch. They have basically maintained their NL East lead. They entered it about five and a half up. They've lost a game and a half, which is not great, but you know what? They have a comfortable margin. We have a soft schedule coming up for the Mets in September. We'll see what happens there. But right now, the NL East is still a battle. The AL East is not much a battle. The Yankees are not being as proud as they could be. They did make some moves finally this week. They brought up Oswaldo Cabrera and Esteban Floreal, which is great. But at the same time, why isn't Oswald Peraza up here? The dude is in crushing AAA. He's a great defensive shortstop. Why not bring him up? You're afraid of losing Marwin Gonzalez? This team needs a spark. Now you have Oswaldo Cabrera up, who's been good, and can be that utility guy who plays in the Marwin role. Cut Marwin, bring up 
Peraza, see what you have here. Maybe add some life to the team that really needs it. And these two games right here coming up this week. You got on schedule tomorrow night. Schedule tonight, excuse me. Domingo Herman, Max Scherzer. On Tuesday, Frankie Montas trying to get himself going in the Yankee uniforms against Jacob DeGrom. That could be Tywan Walker if the Mets choose to go that way. I don't know if that's the widest idea because he's got a bad back if the back locks up. You're basically asking the bullpen to go deep again. I found the Mets, I would push Taiwan Walker into that Colorado series. Say, okay, give you a few more days, get yourself a bullpen session, see if you're good to go. Trust that Jake and Max will go deep in these games and help rest the unit here. There could be some rain issues because Monday's forecast today is not look great. We'll see what happens with that. But the Mets are lined up perfectly this series. I mean, Scherzer and DeGrom have been dominating for the month of August. Yankees, who have not hit very much of late, Seeing those guys, not fun. And Domingo Herman has not been a stellar guy of late. Frankie Mont has struggled. Miley is coming over from Oakland. You figure this is a spot where the Mets could realistically go in the Bronx and win two after they won two at City Field earlier this year. We'll see what happens with this series. It's a very interesting spot because coming out of this one, the Yankees are going on the road. They have a big West Coast swing where they go to Tampa. Mets coming home for a big homestand that includes the Dodgers. So fun spot for both of these teams. We'll keep track of that as well. But up next, we're going to dive into some college football with Bill Bender, the Sporting News, right after this. Biggest third down in Bryce Young's career. We need 10. Play clock at four. From the pocket. Launching downfield. Underthrown and intercepted. Keely Ringo has an escort down the sidelines. All the way to the end zone. And Georgia is going to conquer the Crimson Tide. All right, we are back here on the Justin Suffering Podcast, getting ready for the college football season. Joining me today, uh, our big college football guest, he covers college football sporting news. Bill Bender is back with us. Bill, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Before we get to this on-the-field stuff, I feel like the big domino everybody's sort of talking about now is this news that came out last month that USC and UCLA are abandoning the Pac-12, moving to the Big Ten. Like, what's your take on this move as really just reshaping the entire landscape of college football? Well, you know, I mean, everybody's got a take, but it, it's definitely made the Big Ten a coast-to-coast conference. Um, increases visibility, increases TV money. I mean, a lot of, as everybody knows, these moves are being generated by TV money and uh, the play, the future of the playoff and those kind of things. So it's weird, you know, somebody who grew up in Ohio and didn't really like USC as a kid. Uh, um, but it, it's neat because you're going to get to see USC play Ohio State, UCLA play Michigan, and, you know, Nebraska play USC. I, I think it's going to be cool. I think it'll be cool, too. It's, it's one of those things that just, like, Football and basketball do drive the bus here. It just feel weird, though, saying it. And yes, it's great for this. It'd be weird seeing, you know, like the volleyball game between like Rutgers and USC. That's good. Weird. That's weird to see. I feel like it's just the cost of business these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are, I, I think they're going to have enough money to do all that stuff, though. You know, with the, the TV money numbers are astronomical, absurd. I can't, you know, I can't come up with a word to describe how much money it is. Um, so I think they're going to make out on that. And, you know, it will help. Like, if you're in USC shoes, of course you take the money. It's a dramatic increase of what you would make from staying in the Pac-12. So 
it, it does test the traditions of college football. It tests whether or not it's a regional sport anymore. But I keep telling people, yeah, it, yeah, sure, college football is regional. That's great. It's being dominated by one region. Yep. And that's the, the difference with what the Big Ten did with this move. Yeah. Plus, I think it's also of USC, UCLA, and like you're in a conference right now that's had trouble getting into the playoff. Moving the Big Ten theoretically would increase your chance of getting to the playoff. You have a good team. Yeah, I mean the the Pac-12 had not had a playoff team since '16. They, you know, Oregon obviously made it in '14 and won a game. But yeah, I mean, from a visibility standpoint, it's not always fair for the Pac-12. They can't change what time the sun sets on the eastern on the Eastern time zone. I mean, I because there are guys like us, right, that are going to stay up and watch those games. But the fact of the matter is a large portion of college football fans aren't staying up for that 10 o'clock game between Oregon and Washington State. You know, they'll, they'll watch the huge games in the Pac-12, but they're not watching those. And this is a way for USC, UCLA, and if other teams from the Pac-12 end up joining the Big Ten, for them to increase their visibility. Yeah, absolutely. And right now, we feel like we're kind of in this period where we're sort of waiting for this next domino to fall. I don't know where it's going to be, whether it's some teams joining the Big 12, the Big Ten expanding further here. Like, what do you think could happen next year with with some of these teams that got left in the dust? Well, I, you know, we're going to find out. I think that's – eventually there will be casualties. And, and that's the unfortunate thing is that if there is super conferences and if there is a, another round of realignment, then – they're going to change. It's going to hurt some some schools. It's going to hurt the Washington states and the Oregon states that might not have a chair when it's all over. And that's the difference between college football and the NFL. College football has those places that may not necessarily have huge viewership or, or huge national appeal. But, I mean, I've been to Morgantown and I've been to, you know, NC State at a game at Raleigh and, and how amazing it is. So I, I think that's something that could be the casualty of all this realignment stuff. Yeah, for sure. Let's get some of the on-field stuff here. And obviously last year was a big year for Georgia. They broke through. They won their first national championship under Kirby Smart. And what do you think their chances are here of pulling off a repeat? I mean, they're right there. Right? They're, they're going to be good. It's, we're going to find out if they can withstand – losing as many guys to the NFL as they did. Never easy when you uh, lose, I think it was 15 guys to the NFL draft, especially on the defensive side. It's a little bit different than LSU, who most of the guys they lost to the NFL a couple years ago were part of the arguably the greatest offense of all time. So, I, I still think Georgia's got a chance. I, you know, if I was ranking the, the true heavyweights, they're probably a step behind Alabama and Ohio State just because of what those schools have coming back. Yes, yeah, really fair. Speaking of Alabama, I feel like they've been right where they usually are. They're right near the top of the polls here. Disappointing finish in the title game last year. I feel like Nick State is definitely motivated to try and get another title here. What do you expect out of the Crimson Tide this year? Oh, they're going to be really good. I mean, that's that's real breaking news there, I guess. <laughs> um, but, I mean, when you have the, the returning Heisman Trophy winner in Bryce Young and who didn't miss a beat, from Hack Jones last year. Receiver, I mean, they had an injury at the position this week, but um, still deep enough there. They're gonna, I think Jameer Gibbs will be a breakout star. He's, he was already bad at Georgia Tech, but I think he's going to be in a lot more living rooms now, and, and people are going to realize how good he is. And then um, defense around Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, loaded secondary. 
I think they have 10 guys in our top 50 NFL draft big board for next year. So, I, yeah, they're going to be hard to beat. When Nick Saban said it was a rebuilding year, the crazy thing about it, no matter how many times you rule your eyes, is he's probably right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about here. And the SEC, obviously, the dominant conference in college football. I've seen before Oklahoma and Texas coming in a few years here. Who can actually push those top two, in your opinion, outside outside Alabama and Georgia? In the SEC? Yeah. Um, I mean, A&M, maybe. Um, that's a great question because it, who the third best team in the SEC is a fairly wide-open debate. Um, it, it's one of those things where, man, they, there's a lot of good teams. And a lot of good teams that, uh, you know, that I just don't know if it's Arkansas or A&M in the West. Is it um, Tennessee or Kentucky in the East? Where does South Carolina fit in? I mean, they've got Spencer Rattler now. I mean, that's what's probably the exciting part of the SEC race is trying to figure out who's going to finish second in each of those divisions. Um, Because I think it's going to be tough for any of those teams to catch a Georgia or an Alabama. I mean, Georgia and Alabama could lose a game. They could lose a game, but I just don't see them losing multiple games within the conference. I think the interesting thing for me is, like, if Georgia or Alabama loses to one of those teams that you mentioned, the second tier there, and they manage to run the table otherwise, then you could basically have somebody get in the title game you're not expecting. Well, that's what A&M couldn't do last year. You know, they pulled off the upset, right? But they couldn't, you know, advance that upset. And Georgia lost to South Carolina a couple years ago. I remember it was on my 40th birthday, and it was – I remember the shock value of it, but it's like, okay, can somebody else do that? And that's what makes it so hard. I mean, you, you, like I said, I mean, Alabama and Georgia, I, I, the fact that there hasn't been an SEC championship game with both teams undefeated since Tebow versus Florida, you know, or versus Alabama in 09, tells you how hard it is. But I just, I mean, the depth, the, the recruiting, the talent those teams have, I don't see either one of them losing twice. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to the Big Ten for a minute. Obviously, Ohio State's the more highly ranked team. They did not make the playoff last year, and Michigan did. Michigan has a lot of talent back. Ohio State's, the, I think, the slight edge on top here. Would you rank it that way? Ohio State's the slight favorite to win the Big Ten? I, I actually think they're kind of a more than a slight favorite just because of the offensive talent. And I think but you, you you make a good point. It's, like, it's almost like Michigan, people were getting, they've won the Big Ten. You know, and they've got some talent back on the offensive side, and you know, it's going to be tough for them to replace David Ojabo and, and Aiden Hutchison. But they're still going to be pretty good. And their schedule is soft enough early in the season that I think by October, when they finally start getting in a couple real fist fights, um, they'll be pretty good. So I, I think the Wolverines are uh, going to be a little bit better than people think. Yeah, for sure. And let's start with the same question here from the Big Ten. Like, who do you feel is that sort of that third team in the Big Ten that could really, like, give these two a, like a push, a challenge? I mean, Wisconsin in the West. And then I don't think Michigan State's going anywhere because Mel Tucker, you know, he's done a good job with the transfer portal, been an experienced quarterback. Some guys stayed back and, and they worked the portal again. I mean, they do have to replace Kenneth Walker, and that's not going to be easy because he was special at the running back position. But um, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're going to. They, but, and if you talk to some of their players at Big Ten Media Day, you know, Xavier for Henderson, for example, he said, yes, Ohio State was better than us, but I don't think they were 49 nothing at halftime better than us. So, I mean, that's going to be the big hurdle for them. Can they 
keep that rivalry going with Michigan, which they've won the last two years, and then can they take that next step? Maybe go go give the Buckeyes something when Ohio State comes to East Lansing this time. The last two with the the Buckeyes have not been particularly close. Yeah, that's certainly true. And go to the ACC for me because obviously last year. Surprising year, Pitt ends up winning the AC largely because Clemson had his worst year in a long time under Davo Swinney here. I mean, the polls seem to be very high on the Tigers, and they're going to bounce back here. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, with the defense they got coming back, Brian Bercy, a um, couple other really good players on that side of the ball, Trenton Simpson, um, they'll be good. I, you know, and it comes down to quarterback play. DJ Young-Lungalele and Cade uh, Klubnick, if he comes in and gets some reps, um, they need that to be better. I mean, their defense is going to be elite. And, I mean, the good news is we get to see that on Labor Day night where most people get to watch and see and really take in whether or not that that, that team is any different. Yeah, for sure. And, obviously, one team I am caught my eye on here is Notre Dame because I remember all the craziness last year at the end when – uh, the coach left, and Marcus Freeman took over, and Notre Dame has a lot of talent coming in here. I think they're fifth in the coaches' poll right now, and a lot of the players are excited about Marcus Freeman. How do you think that the Irish do this year? They're going to be good. I mean, it's not an easy schedule, though. I mean, when you open against at Ohio State, they play BYU in Las Vegas. They play Clemson at home, and then at the end of the year, they're playing USC, which we'll talk about as well. But, I mean, that's a loaded schedule. So if Notre Dame goes 11-1 and one with that schedule, there shouldn't be too many people running around saying, hey, this isn't a playoff team because that's a playoff schedule. So, But it's not going to be easy, um, especially in that opener. And, you know, for Marcus Freeman, he has done a fantastic job recruiting, and they're going to have to figure out quarterback for this first game, whether it's Bookner or Pine. I think it'll be a Bookner. And um, anxious to see how he rubs off on that defense and, and how – improved their linebackers will be good because they're going to be coached as good as anybody with Marcus Freeman, with James Laurinaitis, with Al Golden, the new defensive coordinator. So they should be pretty good up front. Yeah, for sure. And obviously we talk about a lot of teams we think are going to be in the mix for the college football playoff. A lot of teams in the big 10 sec Clemson, like I feel like we have not talked about the big 12 or the pac 12 game, which leading is more likely to produce a team that can contend for the playoff. I still think the Big 12, I mean, because even though the problem with that is they've got five teams that are pretty even, so you're wondering, you know, how competitive, that could be the most competitive league, but is it good enough to produce a playoff team? So that's something to keep in mind with them. Um, you know, Oklahoma be pretty good. I think Baylor, Baylor lost a lot of skill guys, but they're going to be good up front. Texas has got a ton of talent, but we do the Texas thing every year. Um, they play Alabama early, so we'll know what they're really about. And then even down to Oklahoma State and Kansas State, those teams are definitely capable of winning that conference. Yeah, absolutely here. And do you have a potential sleeper right now, you're wise to say, that this team plays well, they could sneak into the playoff if somebody stumbles among these contenders that we're, we're watching already? You know, a lot of people are on NC State and, uh, you know, those type of – like a team like that, I think uh, – for me, it's probably Utah. They're not really a, a end team, but I mean, to be a sleeper, you really six through ten is your sleepers anymore because that top four is so hard to break through. I think if Utah beats Florida, if Utah um, get through the Pac-12 with one or less loss and, and build on what we saw on the Rose Bowl, I mean, they showed they could play with Ohio State. They just couldn't stop them. So, um, 
they can build on those things. Yeah, I mean, Utah's a team that definitely has has my attention, especially going into week one, because they're a favorite at Florida. They're favorite to win the game. So uh, that, that's a really big game for the Pac-12. Yeah, it absolutely is here. And I think, obviously, one thing I want to watch, everybody's watching here, is the Heisman situation here. And obviously, you get, unusually have the reigning Heisman Trophy winner back because Bryce Young is back for another year at Alabama here. Is he the favorite to repeat? You think there's somebody else that can challenge him here for this award? Yeah, it's hard to repeat. It hasn't happened. It's only happened once. You know, Archie's the only one to do it and back in the 70s. And that's why I think it's almost like C.J. Stroud's the favorite because, one, you know, there's that the way the Heisman works sometimes. We get tired of one guy and we move on to the next one. Um, there's guys on Alabama's team that could also win the Heisman. Oh, there's Will Anderson, Jameer Gibbs. Um, Jackson Smith, Jigbo, Ohio State's one that I kind of like because I think he's going to have a ridiculous year at receiver. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think if you look at all those things, but Bryce Young could absolutely still win it. He's going to have great numbers. He's going to be on the best team in college football. They could go 13-0. and And uh, it'd be kind of cool to see somebody win, too. It would be pretty cool. Something we really haven't seen lately. My last question is this, because obviously we know the conference games really when the season gets going here, but I feel like college football teams have done better of late scheduling these marquee non-conference games early this season. What are a couple that you have circled on your calendar saying, I got to make sure I watch these games? I mean, Ohio State, Notre Dame's huge. Um, but, I, I mean, outside of the, the, the easy ones to say, like Ohio State, Notre Dame, Alabama, Texas, or stop it. Everybody's going to be watching those games. But I mentioned Florida, Utah. Um, I think even, like, Arkansas, Cincinnati in week one's a fun game because Cincinnati's one coming off the playoff appearance, and Arkansas's trying to break through and be kind of that it team in the SEC West with Sam Pittman. So, I mean, those are a couple that stand out. I mean, and then you get into – yeah, you know, it's later, but I, it's in November. But Clemson-Notre Dame will be good at Notre Dame. I mean, that'll be another big stage game for the Irish, big one for Clemson. We all know what happened when they played there last year. And, you know, kind of a big game for the ACC as they continue to sell their brand and kind of brings their conversation full circle as they try to keep up with the Big Ten and the, the pack for uh, the SEC because that'll be a big night for their brand. It's really a big night for their brand, Bill. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow what you on social media keep up with your coverage for of college football for Sporting News? Yeah, I'm at Bill Bender, 92 SportingNews.com, and, uh, and we'll be we'll be turning them out. I mean, it's that time of year, so we've got plenty of content over there and having a lot of fun doing it. Absolutely, Bill. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Fantasy Football Week on the podcast. We are getting ready, you ready for your drafts next week. Join me today, one of the hosts of the award-winning Draft Sharks Fantasy Football Podcast, Matt Schaub is here. Matt, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. And glad, thanks for coming on here. Got a lot of fun fantasy stuff to discuss you this week. I feel like the one thing that's very different for me, I feel like all the player movement this offseason with all of these big-name guys, especially fantasy positions, moving to TNT, I feel like it made much more harder for me to prep for my draft than it usually is. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got some big-name wide receivers, especially on the move, and obviously the big challenge with that is we know how good they are, but how much target share are these guys getting? So then we have to decide whether we're betting on talent, whether we're worried about situation, and a lot of times it just depends on, you know, exactly what the draft price is you're paying for that guy and who else is on the board. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got not only that, you also have to factor in, you know, like quarterback move as well. I mean, Russell Wilson going to Denver, I'm sure, is going to impact all his receivers there as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was probably the first big chip, right? Tough yep. to remember exactly when things happened. But yeah, Russell Wilson's a big one. And you can tell how excited people get about Russell Wilson, and for good reason, by where Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton immediately moved to on uh, ADP boards. So yeah, it, that, that's been something to navigate as we move through draft season and watch exactly where those guys are going. Yeah. In terms of this, well, I think there's also a challenge is all the preseason stuff because trying to sort out like who's playing in preseason games, got to report some camps about, Oh, this guy's in the best shape of their life. This guy is burning everybody camp. Like how do you cut through the noise? When you try and make, when you try to get ready for your dress. Well, I think it's really important to take each situation as its own situation. Cause as soon as you think, well, this is all coach speak. I'm ignoring it. Uh, you're doing that wrong because sometimes you'll you'll hear things from coaches that matter. Like for example, we've gotten not great things said about um, Antonio Gibson by Ron Rivera and the Washington staff since his fumble in the first preseason game. So you don't want to totally ignore the way that Ron Rivera is talking about a competition in the backfield and end up overdrafting Antonio Gibson. You know, on the other hand, there is plenty of coach speak out there, so you don't want to take everything the coaches say at face value because otherwise you can end up either overvaluing or undervaluing guys based on that. And then, you know, all the camp buzz, like we need to assume in general that guys are probably going to look pretty good at training camp. You know, their, their teams are trying to set them up in positions that are going to maximize their skills. They're going against teammates. Obviously, a lot of times they're going against second teamers it might have rookies who are playing with the second team against the second team so you know it's really important I think most of all to just look at exactly what you're looking at in each case and try to you know analyze what it means there what the upside is there and then you know after that the effect on the price because there's some buzz that doesn't get um, a guy moved appropriately on fantasy football ADP boards and then there's some other buzz that just moves a guy too much. And suddenly you'd have to pay too much to follow him. So, you know, again, it's just really important to to look at each case as it comes up. Yeah, absolutely here. And what is your general strategy entering your drafts this year? I know there's a lot of guys that, oh, like, I have to go running back, running back first, my first two picks. I have to go zero RBs and try and stack up the elite receivers. Like, how do you, like, tend to play it? I think that the only way to do it wrong is to go into your draft saying, this is what I have to do. Because that's where you're setting yourself up to just take the next guy as opposed to taking the guy. And that's what I want to do is be in position to take the guy. If I, so, for example, I'm in a draft with some other you know, fantasy analysts right now, and it's a best ball format, so you know, it automatically takes our best scoring lineup each week. I started this draft with five straight not running back picks, and that's I'm not a zero RB guy. I'm not against zero RB, but it's not a strategy that I go into a draft assuming that I'm going to use. But I get into this draft, Cooper Cup is still there as the third wide receiver on the board. Then running backs go early and Tyreek Hill's sitting in the middle of round two and it's best ball so I can kind of take the best that comes from him and not worry as much about the worst. Then T. Higgins makes it to me in round three. So it's like, all right, I guess we're doing this. We're going to start with three wide receivers. Round four, Josh Allen hasn't gone anywhere. I see that everybody else has already taken a not, um, has already taken a running back in their lineup. So I know that I might not necessarily be the one who's taking the first quarterback off the board most of the time. But in this case, 
it makes me different and keeps my roster different from what the rest of the league is doing. But it also gives me that potential difference maker at quarterback if Josh Allen does deliver on the number one overall QB stuff. You know, back around after that, it's Gabriel Davis is still on the board. Again, that's a player that I'm not necessarily taking in general in drafts. I'm not targeting him going in. But in this case, he pairs with the quarterback that I just took. It still helps me to differentiate. So for me, it's all about staying flexible into and throughout your draft because we're all going to face things in each draft that go differently than we expected going in. So I think you have to, you know, know the landscape. You have to have ideas that you want to follow, but you have to most importantly be flexible and go with what that particular draft gives you. Absolutely. I do love that strategy. Basically, my way of looking at it, I say you're playing the board. You're not really going in with a lock to solve. I have to do this. If you do that, then you end up like, screwing yourself up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, I go to obviously, like, let's say we're in a standard league here, like 12 teams have PPR. You're fortunate to land number one pick here. What are you doing with it? Uh, if I am starting three receivers in this league, then I am probably starting that draft with Cooper Cup most often. I wouldn't say it's 100% of the time. I also like Christian McCaffrey up there. And I do like Christian McCaffrey a little ahead of Jonathan Taylor if it's half PPR or, or uh, full PPR, just because of that ultimate reception ceiling. I still think that Christian McCaffrey, if he's healthy all season, has the highest ceiling in those formats. Um, at the position. So I'm willing to take the chance. And I, I don't think that the injury risk is as scary as it seems. You look at McCaffrey's past two seasons and he missed a ton of games, but the injuries were all unrelated to each other. It's not like he had the same knee be a problem both seasons. He didn't have the same hamstring be a problem both seasons. So we have an injury guide on draftsharks.com that actually factors in workload, um, a player's history of injuries, but also the time since his last injury and all of those things feed into this algorithm that spits out the probability that a guy will get injured. And Christian McCaffrey is not any higher than guys like Derrick Henry, Dalvin cook, um, other high workload running backs in that first round. So when you look at the way the past two years went for McCaffrey, you think injury risk, but when you're weighing him against the other running backs in round one, now he has a higher injury risk than Jonathan Taylor, who doesn't have much injury behind him higher than Najee Harris who doesn't have injuries behind him. But the key thing to try to look beyond here is that running backs in general are high injury risk guys. Derrick Henry would not have been somebody we'd call an injury risk player until the middle of last year when he broke his foot. And there's nothing signaling that he's going to break that foot other than that he's touching the ball a lot of times every week. And when you do that, that's the greatest signal of your risk of injury so you know just kind of circling back to McCaffrey I wouldn't not draft McCaffrey because you're scared he's going to get hurt because we should be scared that all these running backs are going to get hurt in the first round so instead shoot for that ceiling and try to overlook that risk that scares you often yeah I've been doing a lot sorry my research I had my dress coming in a few weeks here and I see obviously there's a big grouping of running backs that end up filling up most of the first round here do you have any sort of like tiers for the first round running backs you're paying like you're separating like this group in class one, this is the second class. Like, how would you break rank them? It's really McCaffrey by himself by a little bit to start the draft, you know, unless we're talking about non PPR or even anything less than half PPR. Cause I know we have various systems at this point. After that, I think Jonathan Taylor is probably a little bit closer to the rest of the group than he would be considered in most places. So there's probably still a Jonathan Taylor only shelf behind McCaffrey, but then just behind that, I think, 
uh, to me, Austin Eckler, Derrick Henry, Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, um, everybody in that range is really pretty close together. So I don't feel like I need to get one of those guys over the other. And Saquon Barkley is in that range as well. And I think because that range includes a couple of players that have a shot of getting into round two, it makes me more willing to then take somebody like Justin Jefferson in the middle of round one, or even Stefan Diggs late in round one, certainly Jamar Chase in the mix there as well. All right. So let's, let's stick with our 12 team hypothetical here. Like if what, what slot in the first, I say is that probably the, you have to make the toughest choice at in terms of like you're just below the top tier of guys. You have to pick like the best, of the second tier. I think the toughest spot is probably fifth or sixth. And that is assuming that Justin Jefferson is off the board. The first, I'm assuming that the first four picks are McCaffrey, Taylor, Cooper Cup, Justin Jefferson. I think then like five, six, and seven get tough because all of the running backs I like, they all just have, you know, maybe it's an injury red flag. Maybe it's uh, what if his touchdown rate from last year, Austin Eckler in particular, what if that comes down a little bit? So, you know, there's just this little thing like, ooh, well, what about that with this guy? And then Jamar Chase, like, I love the player, obviously. I love the situation. Is his target share going to come up from where it was last year? I want to just go ahead and bet on the talent with him because last year I didn't bet on the talent enough and I was wary of a rookie wide receiver and he, you know, blew up my expectations for him. So right in that range, it's, it's a bunch of guys that I can talk myself out of if I try to, but that I should ultimately be talking myself into. And it's, it's this range where, you know, if I'm picking 10 times, I'm not sure there's one single player that I'm taking more than three out of those 10 times. It's certainly interesting here. And you mentioned some of the top fantasy receivers here. We talked about Cooper Cup and Justin Jefferson. Who else do you think is like below them in terms of like the like elite tier? Like these are your locked in like wide receiver ones for for your team. Yeah, I think Jamar Chase does belong up there. I do have more of a question of for him with the target chair, like I mentioned, just because T. Higgins is there, but like I said, last year showed me that I should just go ahead and bet on the talent and trust the Bengals to get him the ball enough. And I think he's the kind of guy who can stay overly efficient on the opportunities he does get. Stephon Diggs, I think, is getting slightly underrated up in that range. I mean, he's right around wide receiver four, wide receiver five. So I just say slightly because we're in the range where we are splitting hairs. And I think that he belongs consistently inside round one. I feel better about Stephon Diggs than I do Devontae Adams. Just because Stephon Diggs is still with the team that he was on the past two years, he got strong target shares. Last year, his touchdown rate was actually lower than it really should have been. I mean, he led the league in end zone targets, but his TD rate was down below what it was back when he was with the Vikings. So I think Stephon Diggs could have, I mean, I, I hesitate to say bounce back because he was still a top 10 fantasy receiver last year, but because he was being drafted as a top three guy, it felt disappointing. So I think there's a chance that he could climb back into that range, even like ultimately score wide receiver one if everything breaks right for him. So I really like Stefan Diggs down in that range. And I think CeeDee Lamb has a pretty good shot of getting into that range of guys that we just consider clear wide receiver ones because the only real question on him for fantasy purposes there is, does he finally get that target share, that ultimate high target share? And I say finally, it's his third season. So, you know, it's not like he's been in the league forever and we know what he is. But, you know, the the hesitation for some people has been CeeDee Lamb did not command that clear number one target share the past two years. And sometimes, well, oftentimes, historically, that guy has trouble getting into that range. 
But CeeDee Lamb is really set up to dominate target share this year. So, you know, maybe he doesn't, but I'm willing to bet that he does. And I think he's a good enough player in a good enough situation and with a healthier quarterback this year to, you know, just potentially go crazy if he does get like 27, 28% targets this year. Yeah, it's good to know. And obviously, another position you got to be very careful with is the quarterback because obviously if you want the big names, whether it's Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes, you're paying a premium. Usually, maybe he's early as the third round, sometimes the fourth round here. Like, But like, there are values you take later, Jess. So like, when personally you feel like, obviously you're playing the board in all situations here, like, when you feel comfortable taking the quarterback, who are some guys you look at that you got to say, okay, I have good, feel good value getting my quarterback here? I would say in general, in a common format, I, so I'm almost never going to be the one taking the first quarterback off the board because, it's, I mean, it's unlikely that the same guy keeps leading the position. And, you know, again, it's kind of splitting hairs. I don't think Josh Allen's going to bust. But if you can take somebody a few rounds later that also has a shot to ultimately lead the position in scoring, then obviously you're getting value. That said, if I'm in a league where everybody's drafting like that and I get into round four, like middle of round four, I think Josh Allen definitely makes sense there in most, you know, common sized leagues and assuming we're not playing in a tournament. I think after Josh Allen, I'd probably be waiting at least around. Then it really depends on who else is on the board and what else I have on my roster. But I think starting in round five, Lamar Jackson makes sense. I think in that mix, you know, over those next, two to three rounds. Justin Herbert certainly makes sense. He doesn't have as much of the rushing to help out as Lamar Jackson does. So I think Herbert does have the ceiling to ultimately lead the position in scoring, but he'll need like a, a truly abnormal passing season, which I think he's capable of, but it's, you know, it's a little bit tougher to, to bet on that. The extraordinary stuff, like an, you know, 8% touchdown rate or something like that. But I do think he belongs in that range. If he slips, which he hasn't tended to this year, I think Kyler Murray often slips a little bit, lower than he should in drafts. I think Jalen Hurts is going at a value range. I think those are two guys that could lead the position in scoring as well. So those are kind of the guys that I'm watching to see where they go through that like round four to seven range. And if any of those guys makes it into round seven, I consider it a strong value there. Yeah, I also forgot the receiver. One, one thing I'm to bring up here is that we had two of the biggest names in the NFL switch teams this year, the offseason. So you had Devontae Adams, Leave Aaron Rodgers, go to Derek Carr and the Raiders. We had Tyreek Hill, leave Patrick Holmes in Kansas City, goes down to Miami with Tua Tagovailoa. Like, I would assume it adds to the better fantasy set, but I, am I correct in that assumption? I, I mean, it's it's really tough to say. I would say Devontae Adams is in the better spot because I think that the signals are the Raiders are going to pass plenty, and we don't have to guess as much to project them to do that. Plus, he's playing with you know his college quarterback, so I think that helps. Um, you know, ultimately, the question for both of them is, do we see the kind of target share that we got that helped propel them each at their last stops? And I think it's a bigger question for Devontae Adams because he dominated in that area with Green Bay. Now he's got Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller around. So I think the ceiling comes down some, but, you know, does he still get to 26% in, a, in an offense that throws the ball more than Green Bay's did? I think he'll ultimately be okay. But that's why I'm taking like Stefan Diggs over Devontae Adams. Just enough to push him, you know, behind somebody else that where it really matters. Where you're making a decision between those two players at the end of round one. So Devontae Adams is like fifth, sixth on my board. I can kind of go either way between him and C D Land. Tyreek Hill is a little bit further down because I have to one bet on his target share versus Jalen Waddle, who got huge target share last year with the quarterback that they're both going to be playing with this year. And then I also need to bet at least a little bit 
on Tua to step up in his production this year to support the production that Tyreek Hill puts forth on those targets that he does get. Like we haven't seen very much at all of Tyreek Hill without Patrick Mahomes to know what we can expect if he gets 25% target share with a quarterback that's not Patrick Mahomes. So there's some risk there. I think in the second half of round two, it gets to be where I'm more willing to bet on the talent of Tyreek Hill and see what happens. But there's certainly not a, a spot where I'm totally comfy. I guess maybe if he gets into round three, but that's not normally happening. So Tyreek Hill's been one of those guys that I, I kind of hope somebody drafts before he gets to the point where I'm taking him just so it's not me deciding not to take him. Yeah, it makes some sense here. I'll talk about tight end for a minute here because my philosophy of tight end has always been like, if you can't get one of the elite guys who is basically like wide receiver production wise, like I try and stay away from this until at least round 10, because I'm trying to stack up the receivers and the running backs here. Like how deep do you feel like that top tier is now for the tight ends this year? Like, and what point should you be saying, okay, I should wait for a while till I go back in this position. I think that there, I think it's an interesting uh, position with lots of different shelves that you can kind of stop at and peruse. I think that the top shelf to me is, is just Travis Kelsey right now and I would consider him anywhere around the one two turn and certainly the further he gets in the round two the more sense he makes I'm a little bit more hesitant on Mark Andrews just because I don't know that Baltimore throws the ball nearly as much as they did last year maybe they do and if they do he'll be a fine value where he's going but his, his price is certainly way up from where it was last year so he really needs that plus a continued strong touchdown rate to deliver so there's a you know there's less of a chance that I'm going to feel bad about not taking Mark Andrews this year than Travis Kelsey, I think, at their relative prices. Behind that, I think Kyle Pitts, it's worth looking where he comes off the board, and it's more so for a full PPR format, because anywhere where I'm getting less than one full point per reception, I think there's more risk to Kyle Pitts, because I'm not betting on big offensive fireworks from Atlanta. So um, outside of PPR, I don't care as much about Pitts, but inside PPR, I'm certainly watching him. If I don't land one of those two guys, Kyle Pitts, maybe around the 3-4 turn, uh, Travis Kelsey around the 1-2 turn, I'm probably waiting a little bit after that because I think Dallas Goddard is mispriced a little bit by ADP. I think he's pretty similar in outlook to George Kittle. And if you can get Dallas Goddard several rounds later, then you know, you're gaining value, even if George Kittle ends up outproducing Dallas Goddard. So those are kind of the the watch players for me. But I'm also with you in that I don't feel like I need to jump on the position at any of those levels because I also really like the upside on Evan Ingram and the upside on Devin and David and Joku, especially this year. And both of those guys are going very late. So if tight end just doesn't line up with where I want to take it at any of those earlier spots, I don't mind at all waiting and taking one or even both of those guys late and seeing what happens. Because I think they both have the upside to turn into top 12 tight ends and guys that we start uh, pretty much every week. Good to know. And obviously, when you talk about fantasy, you're obviously looking at your sleepers here. Everybody has, like, their one or two guys who they love and say, oh, I have to make sure I get them on my team. Who are those guys for you this year? You're making sure that you say, I want them on my team. I would say Evan Ingram is one of those guys. And people hear Evan Ingram's name, they're like, oh, God, you mean the guy that's always hurt and let me down the past two years? I mean, yeah, that's the guy. And it's because he's going late in drafts. And that's that's the thing is I'm not – I think that when you get in trouble is going into drafts saying, I have to have this guy no matter where he goes. Or these guys are definitely going to be my guys, whatever I have to pay to get them. 
you know, if a guy's jumping up three rounds in ADP over the course of draft season, which is longer than it ever has been before, you aren't really drafting the same guy come August that you were drafting in May. So Evan Ingram has stayed low in tight end two territory. I, again, think he has the upside to get into the top 12. We had Hayes Carlion on our podcast. He's a Jaguars beat writer. He said he expected Evan Ingram to be among the top three targets for that Jacksonville team. I think they'll throw the ball plenty. I think Evan Ingram, we're starting with a guy who was a first-round pick, so we know the physical ability is there. I'm going to bet that the coaching staff for the Giants the past couple of years misused him some. But ultimately, it's just a low-cost, um, so then low-risk bet on you know the talent-plus situation. Some other guys, like it, it really changes depending on when I'm drafting because Romeo Dobbs was somebody that I would have targeted you know, a month ago, maybe even a few weeks ago, he's really flying up forward. So I'm trying not to chase him too early in a draft. But, you know, what I love about Dobbs, the player is good. Everything they've been saying about him is good, but especially the opportunity. And I think that can help kind of highlight the types of players you want to look for is, you know, early in their career receivers, first, second year, especially, who are in situations where it's just not clear what's going to happen. So, you know, if we're talking about round 12 on and drafts, you just go ahead and bet on talent. You take a shot on somebody getting more opportunity than we might be able to reasonably project right now. And that's the kind of guy that can blow up for you if the opportunity does match up with the talent and, you know, and the price that you're paying to get him. And then suddenly by October, you have somebody that you're starting that you were drafting in round 13. Yeah. It makes some sense here. My last question is kind of going the other way here. Obviously, Every year, there's always that hard. So, oh, I took this guy in the first round, and he got hurt. I took this guy in the third round, and he underproduced. Like, who are some guys you're trying to avoid this year? Guys, I'm trying to avoid. Let me try to let me try to bring up a list so that I can <laughs> know exactly who I'm thinking about and not uh, overlook anybody. So, like at, at running back, DeAndre Swift, and I, I hesitate to say it because there are lots of smart fantasy people that are big on DeAndre Swift, but he concerns me at where I have to buy him, which is basically the one-two turn very early in round two. I just don't know if the Lions are going to give him enough work to match up with that spot unless he's very efficient on the touches he gets. And if they do give him the workload to match up with his draft price, then they're increasing his injury risk, which has already been a question with him. So just ultimately, it's not that I hate Swift, but the, the range where he's going I would much rather take Saquon Barkley. I would much rather take Joe Mixon. I'd just rather leave Swift for somebody else to see what happens. Um, Aaron Jones, I actually haven't been on because he's in round two as well. And even though I think the target upside is there with Devontae Adams gone, I think there's also the chance that A.J. Dillon takes more work away from him and also the chance that the Packers just aren't as good on offense with Devontae Adams gone, which for Jones would mean fewer touchdown opportunities. And that's been key to his value in recent seasons um, looking at wide receiver uh, early in drafts as well. I think some of the guys that I'm really not as interested in as the market, Michael Pittman hasn't really made it onto a lot of my teams. And it's, it's kind of similar to Swift in that I don't hate Pittman and he sits high enough in our rankings, but there just tends to be somebody that I like better going in the range where he's going or somebody that's just so excited about him, that they're taking him before he gets to me on my board. Like DJ Moore, for example, is three spots higher 
in our PPR rankings. He's he's going to go later than Pittman in nearly all drafts, but he has at least as much opportunity facing him. Questions on the quarterback for sure, but you know you want to bet on talent plus opportunity there, and then see what happens. So Michael Pittman, I'm a little bit below market on. I'm a, oh Debo Samuel is a big one. Um, he started out draft season going at the end of round one, which I thought was insane, and just people you know not being able to overlook their recency bias at all. He's gotten into middle to second half of round two now, and that's still just too late for me unless I'm playing in a best ball tournament where I want to get you know some shares of a player that good in case he explodes in a playoff week. But in like a full season league, Debo Samuel is not somebody that I'm anywhere close to the draft price on because last season was just completely extraordinary for him. And I mean that in both a good way and a bad way because obviously – it takes a really good player to have extraordinary production. But the way that he produced last year was he spent the first half of the year leading the league in yards per catch. And then he spent the second half of the year scoring rushing touchdowns at just an absurdly high rate. And I don't think that either of those things is likely to happen. So it's, it's tough for me to find him the path to being that top eight wide receiver. Obviously he showed us that it's possible but when you then throw in a rookie, not a rookie quarterback, but a first-time starter at quarterback, a team that doesn't want to throw the ball a ton just volume-wise versus other teams around the league, everything has to really break his way for Debo Samuel to stay in wide receiver one range. I think it's far more likely that he finishes the season more like wide receiver 16 or something like that. And if you're taking him as the seventh wide out off the board, that's a disappointing season. That's for sure, Matt. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll give you a follow social media keep up with your podcast. Oh, yeah. So hit DraftSharks.com. You can find the every episode on there. You can find the links to subscribe to Spotify, uh, Apple, YouTube. We are on those outlets as well. We're on any other outlet where you like to get your podcast. So, yeah, you're, it's, it's easy to find us. And, uh, you know, before I go, thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate the time. No problem. Thanks again, Matt. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. two-minute drill time i talk about the premiere of she-hulk came out thursday the 18th on disney plus and guys say definitely enjoyed this show quite a bit it was not what i've been used to with the marvel shows where i've had my issues with them in terms of these feel like movies they're just split into episodes they don't know how to write tv this one actually felt like a tv show i was very happy about it so general premise of she-hulk here the main character is jennifer walters played by tatiana maslani she's the cousin of Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner, The Incredible Hulk. We we get a intro of her where she basically says that, first of all, I get one thing out here. It's This is a sitcom. It's a lawyer show. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking. So if you like Ferris Bueller, you have some fun with this. We get basically the origin story of She-Hulk in this one episode where uh, she's cousins with Bruce. They are going for a like getaway. They have a car crash. They both get injured. So Bruce's blood gets into her system. She transforms into She-Hulk. Then we spend the whole episode basically learning about how 
Bruce mastered his hulking. He te he's teaching her about it. A lot of Marvel candy stuff, but a lot of funny uh, quips along the way. They have a good runner throughout the episode in terms of uh, Jennifer asking Bruce about whether or not Steve Steve Rogers actually got to have sex when he was Captain America. Fun uh, through line that has a great payoff in the mid credit scene. It seems to be one of those in every episode. It's a tight 30 minutes. You got a lot of laughs. Tatiana Maslany's humor is very funny. And I did enjoy it. I did a lot of fun where they basically set her character up where she can control when she transforms. So you'll have plenty of Tatiana Maslany as Jennifer Walters in human form and in Hulk form. It looks like here that we're going to have case of the week going on here where she reveals the end of the episode in one of her trials that she is a superhero when a villain breaks into the courtroom to try and attack she ends up changing to stop the attack so a lot of fun there i did enjoy this a lot i'm very intrigued to see the marvel take on the half hour sitcom we kind of got this in wandavision where we're kind of homaging sitcoms this is just basically a true story of its own and i think from what I've heard, we're going to get a decent number of cameos throughout the show. I don't think we're going to get much more Ruffalo because he's credited a special guest star episode one. I feel like maybe you see him once more, but if he showed up too often, you take away the fact that this is the She-Hulk show, not the Bruce Banner show. I definitely think it's a lot of fun. Definitely have a lot of laughs. I was cracking up at a lot of stuff in the episode, so I recommend checking it out. I think it is a nice refresher for some of the heavier Marvels I've gotten lately. I think this is more fun. And we got a lot of great stuff out of both Mark Ruffalo and Tatiana Maslany. So definitely check that out. With that, I want to end this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Bill Bender, for hopping on the podcast to talk college football. Also, Matt Schau for coming on here to preview some fantasy football. We'll have more fantasy football coming up in the coming week. You want to stuff like this podcast, including my quick takeaways on the release of the Knicks and Nets schedules. Those came out late last week. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Check out the Sky Guys podcast. Released our episode this week, Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation. That came out last week. Got a recap of it. Coming up this week, Nick Freya is back on the horror of me to recap the Season 2 trailer for Bad Batch. We'll get you ready for Season 2. We have a little more time with the delay for Andor. So we'll get you a Bad Batch preview. That's coming out this week. We're at the Sky Guys podcast. Check out that feed. Same podcast platforms. Old ones mentioned at the top of the show. And that's the Sky Guys exclusive podcast. So check that out there. Also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. That's going to do it for this episode, the first one of the week. Coming up next week, coming up later this week, actually, excuse me, we're going to do some more fantasy football. We're going to draw by Kyle Borchak of NBC Sports Edge. We're going to do some NFL over-unders and more. Until then, have a good week, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.